0: Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And today is Monday, October 6th, 2014. Now, the reason that I mention this uh, is that one week from today, Monday the 13th, is when my friend Bruce Damer will be a guest on the Joe Rogan podcast. And uh, as you most likely know, Joe records his podcast live and streams it on Ustream.tv. And uh, while you'll be able to both watch and listen to it after the fact, I find it much more fun to uh, watch Joe live. And uh, it should be fun to watch, as I think uh, Bruce is going to bring along some a few of the interesting little gadgets he has uh, in the Digibarn Computer Museum that he curates in his spare time. Now, uh, last week I told you that since the boys of the playa I still haven't had a chance to dust off a few Planque Norte talks to send to me. ...that I was uh, going to play another Terrence McKenna talk, which I did. Well, today's program was slotted to be sourced by our women friends, but alas, other duties called them first. And uh, so, once again, you and I are going to hear a few more thoughts from uh, Terrence McKenna. In fact, uh, we're going to pick up where we left off last week with the... Uh, uh, ...now the Saturday morning session of a weekend with Terrence McKenna that was held back in February of 1992... I found it interesting that one of the questions that comes up during this talk is from a woman who asks if there are any differences in how men and women use these sacred medicines. And Terence's answer I found quite interesting, particularly in light of the fact that now... Uh, well, more than 20 years later, us guys are slowly waking up to the fact that ever since the psychedelic resurgence began in the 60s, well, it's been for the most part a good old boys game. So uh, pay attention when you hear that question asked and see what you think about his reply. Now, we start off with Terrence's description of women's role in creating language during the time that he calls a partnership paradise, and uh, the time when he believes human beings were the most human. Now, this comes in the first few minutes of the talk, and I highly suggest that you pause this recording at that point and give a little thought to the fact that materially and technologically we simply aren't going to be able to go back to the way things were 10,000 years ago. That's simply not going to happen, at least not while you and I are still walking around. But it may be worth your time to pause right there and give a little thought to what could be done to bring an archaic balance back into our lives, even though, uh, for the most part, we're all living in crowded cities. How can we get back to some kind of a partnership paradise? That's the real question. And (laughs) if you could see the smile on my face right now, you'd probably guess that I'm thinking about Burning Man. (laughs) And you'd be right. You know, uh, if a society like Burning Man can be allowed to self-organize in one of the most inhospitable places on the planet... Well, then there's no question in my mind about our ability to create partnership paradises in more comfortable surroundings. (laughs) Give it some thought, why don't you? And now let's rejoin Terrence McKenna and a few of his friends on a Saturday morning in the month of February, 1992.
1: I am answering your question about agriculture, but
2: stick with me (laughs) here.
1: So then this is to my mind the, the partnership paradise of prehistory <clears throat> in which the feminine was honored, men and women existed in equilibrium, child caring was shared, men because of the strong upper body and um, uh, different physical characteristics were assigned the hunting. And also because women had babies clinging to them all the time and were not so mobile. Uh, So there was an early division of, of labor. And I think, although I wouldn't argue this to the death, but it seems reasonable to me, that women are probably the inventors of language. And for this, we can both thank them and, uh, you know, wonder about the consequences of it. Now, why would women be the inventors of language? It's because hunting is a fairly generalized concept where great emphasis is placed on stoic waiting and physical strength. You need to be able to keep your mouth shut for hours and hours at a time, sitting stock still, waiting. And then, when the moment comes, just wail on whatever it is that's running by. The position of the, the
3: description of hunting
1: over well, the the gatherer is an entirely different problem. And the women took the gathering. What gathering is all about is. Fine Distinctions You want to be able to say When someone says to you Where did you find These wonderful roots You want to be able to say They're down near The sulfur spring They grow in the ground Underneath the plant With the small yellow flowers And the serrated leaf edge With the furry underneath In other words It's a tremendous problem Of location linguistically and if any of you are botanists you know that until the invention of photography botany created a whole special language for itself called taxonomic description Mm -hmm. where you would say well this plant is cespitose with uh, crenolate leaves and uh, trichomes are present and what this is is an excruciatingly detailed physical description And women also were socialized more than men because they shared child care, they spent time together in food preparation, and and food preparation is part of it as well. You have to be able to not only tell where the plant came from, you have to create a linguistic uh, machine for conveying how it is to be used. Well, I think that this partnership paradise was really the moment when human beings were most human, Mm -hmm. most at peace within and without, between men and women, between adults and children, between the human family and the environment, because we were nomadic, our populations were kept small, uh, and... uh, I think that uh, the sexual style of these early human beings, that we can reconstruct it by looking at phenomenon like the pygmy chimpanzees and then looking at sexual and social styles among aboriginal people like in the Amazon. And the chief thing that comes out of that is uh, group values predominate. So consequently, uh, the great tension that drives our society, which is the tension of uh, uh, mate claiming and holding, which we call, you know, maintaining and breaking relationships, really wasn't there. Uh, if you, in that hunter-gatherer quasi-nomadic situation, the natural style would have been orgiastic. And orgy has a very interesting social consequence. It makes it impossible for men to trace lines of male paternity. This is very important. In other words, the children in an orgiastic society are society's children women know who their children are because they see them come out of their bodies and unless they put them down and forget where they put them (laughs) they will always be able to go back to their children. Because the act, the sex act and the fact of birth are separated by nine months it took a long, long time for the role of the, the specific male to dawn on these societies, once male paternity becomes an issue, there's tremendous tension because the orgiastic style is appealing on one level to everybody, I think. But on another level, if you're concerned about male paternity, you want to suppress Orgy. You want to control women and in fact you begin to think of them as my women and your women and I have nothing to do with your women and you have nothing to do with my women. So women become a source of great anxiety in this situation. Well now this is, I, I want to make it clear, this is not to say that we fell from grace from a state of grace that was laid on to us by nature because the style of all monkeys is male dominance Uh, Even if you go back to the primitive primates, the squirrel monkeys and like that, male dominance hierarchies are always what's happening. So I think that the admission of psilocybin into the protohominid diet actually corrected, if you want to use that word, corrected a social style that had been present in the monkeys for millions of years. And just for... For maybe 50 or 100,000 years, the tendency to form male dominance hierarchies was suppressed by this cult of psilocybin use on the plains of Africa. Well then, the very forces which created this situation, which were the drying up of the African continent, which shrank the great rainforest, broke up this partnership paradise because the mushrooms became, instead of being abundant all year long on these rainy grasslands, uh, the rains became less frequent. The distance between waterholes became greater. The mushrooms became seasonal. The orgies, which had probably been lunar at first, become more stretched out. Maybe they're equinoctial and solsticial, and finally annual and finally occasional and finally they don't happen at all. Now while this is going on people are aware that the mushroom is getting harder to access and so for the first time they begin thinking of strategies of preservation and uh, in a world without refrigeration The obvious strategy is drying or preserving in some medium. Drying of mushrooms is not an effective strategy unless you have hermetically sealed peanut butter jars and Ziploc baggies (coughs) and stuff which uh, we presume they didn't have. (laughs) So then your only choice is some method of preservation. And what I see in the archaeology of the ancient Near East is a supplanting of the mushroom cult by a cult of honey. And honey is a very excellent antiseptic preserving medium. And in many cultures it's used that way. In Mexico to this day, in the Mexican Indian villages, they put the mushrooms and stir them into honey and then they can preserve them for many months that way. There's a problem here, though, which is that honey itself can become an intoxicating substance. Honey ferments into mead, which is a crude form of alcohol. Well, alcohol could hardly be more different than psilocybin in terms of the social values that it promotes. Alcohol promotes a, an inflated sense of of uh, ego, an inflated sense of one's linguistic skill, (laughs) and a lowering of sensitivity to social cueing. Mm -hmm. You see this in any singles bar, you know. The guys become boorish. They hit on the women because now finally they have the courage to hit on the women. And the whole thing gives rise to the fairly unhappy cultural situation of which we're the heirs. I mean, most women... I don't know how true it is of the women in this room under 30, but most women... Uh, their early sexual imprinting goes on in an ambiance of alcohol use and abuse. And that's then lifelong because, uh, you know, it steals one's nerves for love and battle. This is what was, all, or love or battle. This is what was always said about alcohol. So uh, the women who were uh, the, the gatherers of this hunting and gathering equation, essentially they were too smart. They outsmarted themselves. They had this enormous database on wild plants and plants that could be gathered in the environment. And they were nomads. And what nomadism means in this African context is that you follow the great herds of cattle around on a yearly cycle as they move from waterhole to waterhole. And you camp for a few weeks and then you move on following the herds. The problem with this is in the discard of these camps, in the middens of these camps, there would inevitably be seeds discarded as waste. Well, at a certain point women noticed that the middens, the dumps of their of last year's camp was a great place to find food because it seemed to concentrate in those places. And it was because the seeds were being discarded there. So at some point, a Lady Einstein of the High Paleolithic put it together. And it's interesting. This, this has to do with the conquest of the temporal dimension in terms of cause and effect. In other words, at the same time that the guys were figuring out, oh, if you have sex with this woman, then nine months later there will be a child. The women were figuring out, oh, if we throw food away here and bury it, twelve months later there will be food growing on this very spot. Well, at that point, this huge database of information on plants that could be gathered was dumped. And the women said, uh, we, don't, we don't have to do that anymore. Let's just take what we know about emmer wheat, rye, oats, and a couple of other cereal grains, and we will grow those and we don't have to gather anymore. Or gathering can decline in importance tremendously. But in order to care for the emmer wheat and the rye and the oats, the sedentary lifestyle displaced the nomadic lifestyle. And I talked a little bit last night about the consequences of the invention of agriculture. The first consequence was surplus, something the human race had never dealt with before, because in the hunter-gatherer situation, once you've gathered enough, you stop working. Agriculture is a process where you sort of push a button, and lo and behold, here comes abundance, more abundance than you know what to do with. So you have a new problem. The problem is not getting enough food, now the problem is preserving it and defending it and both of these problems can be solved by ceasing to wander and beginning to build walls and so this is what was done the the most advanced structure human structure on this planet 10000 years ago was the grain tower at jericho and it was specifically built for agricultural surplus, and it was built with walls around it to defend itself. Around 10,000, 10,000 to 11,000 years ago, in the archaeological record, all across Europe, the ancient Middle East, and North Africa, we get the appearance of what's called the Tanged Point Techno Complex. What this means is in older strata, ...than the strata of the Tanged Point techno complex, ...when you find an arrowhead... ...you find one arrowhead. It was lost by some Paleolithic hunter... ...in the pursuit of game. Twelve thousand years ago, what you suddenly find... ...are huge concentrations of arrowheads... ...in one place. This means... ...these are not hunting sites... These are sites where somebody laid siege to somebody else's scene in order to grab their women and their food supply and their animals. In other words, warfare is the natural consequence of agriculture. And the, uh, the cultural pattern that we see in the ancient Middle East is a pattern of walled cities, kingship, suppression of women, slavery and bronze-tipped warfare. All the progenitors of our own curiously twisted cultural adaptation are set in place there.
3: So, you know, this is a this is point which may be only important to me. but uh, You know, what you're saying is that um, really once the, the, the first woman or group of women, whoever it was, made this temporal connection, and saw that, you know, we ship the seeds out or whatever happens, probably well, say there's more food. We don't have to wander around so much. And once that happened, the die was cast, you know, from McDonald's and the military-industrial complex, in effect. And that once, uh, once some tribe or bunch of people have a lot more than they could use, and it's there, then it becomes tempting and, in a way, adaptive for other people to say... You know, why wander around out here, screw around, let's just go kill these people and take their shit. Right. And that's a lot easier. Right. Yes. Now, and also what you're saying is that nobody noticed that this was fucked up at the time. Right.
1: Well, it happened over a very long period. And the other thing that I'm saying is... I'll okay. Oh, go ahead.
3: No, I mean, to me that seems to be an important point. In other words, there was a major maladaptive cultural development that happened over a lot of time. At the time, nobody else was noticing that this was bad.
1: And it was driven by weather, see. It was driven by the fact that things were just getting drier and people were trying to find a solution to the drying problem. Um,
3: Nobody thought to say, uh, you know, if we don't store up all this stuff, these other people won't be trying to kill us.
1: Right. Nobody could conceive of how to return to the, to the nomadic style. And, of course, once people started agriculture, then, in some cases, to be a nomad meant you would have to move through these people's areas and their fields, and then they would be waiting for you with rocks and clubs, because they don't want your herds tromping through their fields. But uh, the, the real key factor, which straight anthropology doesn't acknowledge... Is that the slow fading of the use of psilocybin is what permitted all of this, because uh, the boundary dissolving quality of psilocybin is the most important quality, and it was it changed us from monkeys into these shamanic, feminine honoring, goddess worshiping. Uh, ...nomadic people. And then when it began to fade... ...the reassertion of these older primate patterns... ...the reestablishment of male dominance over women... ...and so forth... ...there was nothing to stop it. So I really see psilocybin as a kind of inoculation... ...against primate... ...the primate nature. That, That before the first moment of human history... The human being had been perfected, and by that I mean human beings means people able to express uh, affection and care for others. People filled with a sense of group cooperation and group destiny, and so forth and so on, and that really we should see psilocybin as an inoculation against the formation of ego. Ego is the psychic component, which is the fly in the soup. Once, and the ego, it's it's a maladaptive attitude which changing conditions made into an adaptive attitude. It went from being a form of pathology to being the only game in town as the nature of the situation changed. Ego uh, is dissolved by hallucinogens. And so the hallucinogens kept this egoless society in a kind of stasis for a long, long time. But when it fa- when the presence of the mushroom weakened and disappeared, then these older primate patterns flowed in and uh, dominated the situation. In the story of uh, in the story of Adam and Eve in Genesis, you essentially get this. Message, except it's told from a dominator point of view. I mean, a careful reading of Genesis will show this is the story of history's first drug bust. And it's a woman who's in trouble. What she does is she eats a forbidden fruit. It's forbidden to her by a male, by Yahweh. And she also corrupts her roommate. And they. Uh, and if you read if you read in the older recensions like the Q document or, or the it's very clear it says that their eyes were opened. The issue is not that this is a poisonous plant. At one point in the story, Yahweh walking in the garden mumbles to himself, "If they eat of the fruit of the tree of life, they will become as we are." The issue was one of a striving for equality on the part of the human beings and a suppression of that desire for equality by this gardener, this keeper of the garden, whoever this guy was. (laughs) And so then in the story, they're tossed out of Eden. And it says an angel was set at the eastern gate of Eden with a flaming sword so that they could never make their way back in to Eden. To my mind, this is simply the the African sun drying up this partnership paradise. About 10,000 BC, people begin to settle in the Nile Valley before that people didn't live in the Nile Valley it was an unhealthy place it was a boggy malarial lowland and people lived in the what we call the Sahara Desert, but which was then the Saharan grassland. It was only when the grassland turned to desert that people moved out of the grassland and then settled near the river, and those are the proto-dynastic civilizations of the Egyptian archaeological record. In the Tasseli Plateau in southern Algeria, there are rock paintings... 7 to 15,000 years old that show shamans with mushrooms sprouting out of their bodies and being held hands full of mushrooms they're reproduced in my book here so i think part of what is happening in the in the 20th century is we're making our way back into deep time and we're discovering our own uh, childhood and what we're discovering is a pattern of abuse and trauma the reason human beings are so given to addiction And so restlessly uncomfortable with being is because we, every single one of us, are the victims of a dysfunctional relationship and a trauma that occurred in the childhood of our species. We were meant to be the mushroom using monkey. We were meant to be to have a balanced relationship between the masculine and the feminine we were meant to be the caretakers of the earth but when the connection to the mushroom was broken then we turned to building grain silos forging spears building walled cities establishing the mythology of kingship, slave classes so forth and so on and this is why uh the rediscovery of these things in the 20th century is so important because we have now been at this male dominator, linear uh, culture for about seven or 8,000 years, depending on how you want to measure it. And it has pushed us to the brink of extinction, not only us, but the entire planet is now threatened with upheaval, mass extinction, toxification. Because of our maladaption to being, we don't know how to behave. Yeah, Paul. I just
3: want to question another uh, longer-term scenario here. Um, There's some evidence that, that, that humans uh, have consistently wiped out, uh, For example, we, wiped out, we may have wiped up the Neanderthals who may have been... Um, despite what has been said in the past, peaceful, evolved species. And then earlier on, we may have wiped out, as small monkeys wiped out some of the other uh, pre-humans. And then what about the great mammoths and other animals, which seem to get wiped out just at the time when humans were developing
1: this real hunting trip. Yeah, I mean I think this is true. There there was a big paleontological conference in Canada a few years ago devoted to studying the ice age extinctions of the great mammals and the conclusion was it had to be human beings.
3: Because I mean they had been through many cycles of ice ages. Why should they suddenly disappear? in the last, I say.
1: Yes, I think... V- humans
3: were driven through this hunting.
1: Very early, we began making this kind of impact on the earth. Uh-huh. I
3: want to ask you uh, if you believe there's a distinction between appropriate use of these drugs then and now uh,
2: between men and women.
1: You mean a different way a different to do way, it?
2: Yeah, appropriate use.
1: Hmm, nobody's ever asked me that question before. And,
3: and addiction concerns.
1: Even if right questions? Yeah, what was the question? Uh, the, well, the question over here was, is there a different protocol or should there be a different protocol for men and women using mushrooms or using psychedelics? And the question over here was...
3: I'm just addiction. adding to that, in, in present day and addiction concerns, because we seem to have such a problem with addiction in terms of, you know, abusing all these drugs that, are, that, are, that can really help us so
1: how do we? How do we? Well, I think what we have to do is we have to bring this issue into consciousness, which is never done in a cultural context. I mean, why do we take drugs? Is the real question, and I think that. Um, you know the answer i mean why do we take why do we take bad drugs let's ask that question i think it's because we have an we want to scratch a certain itch and we can't figure out how to get at it and so people they addict to sex to money to drugs to having the morning paper delivered on time i mean i've Myself, I'm threatened with falling into a hysterical rage if, if uh, you know, I get up and there are no eggs. So, you know, I mean, I have to consciously take hold of myself and say, you know, you're not going to die if you have to drive into town and buy a dozen eggs. So don't let it spoil your entire day, you know. Uh, the question about a protocol for men and women, I think it is true that men have more of a problem with drugs than women and more of a problem, um, it's because they have more of a problem with the surrender issue. Uh, Women, by virtue, and it's not so true of modern women, but modern women are a very recent phenomenon on the scene, women, are biologically scripted for these boundary-dissolving experiences because they will, in a traditional society, give birth, usually many, many times in their life. And every single time, it's a complete... Boundary dissolving Tremendum A man, if he's careful Can go from birth to the grave Without ever getting into a tight spot like that <laughs> And What I hear
3: you say is, is that um, uh, These drugs help to balance uh, This male-dominating um, Tendency uh, for quite a while, and certainly now, you know, in its resurgence, you know, it seems to be a real wonderful way to explore um, a, a, a much greater harmony. Um, so you're talking about letting go of the ego, especially the male ego. So I wondered, is there not a, a place there for the woman or the female of the species to explore that um, or a need?
1: no need, no obligation, no... No, no, there is a need because you see um, nothing on earth is as much like a man as a woman. Uh, we tend to forget this. Uh, and, and ego is not now a male problem. We are all completely infected by ego because it's, it's a tradition. I mean, even the rhetoric of feminism, in some cases, is a rhetoric of ego-strengthening. They say, you know, be assertive, don't take this stuff anymore, stand up for what you are. Well, that's all very good, except that uh, it isn't the feminine that you are always standing up for. Sometimes it's just sheer assertiveness, which is an ego kind of thing. I, I think that um, women have a slight jump on men, but at this late stage in the game, everybody has to do work on on this problem because we have made egos such a cultural value. Now, the reason men may have stronger egos generally than women goes back, I think, to that hunting-gathering dichotomy again. Women, when they went gathering, would go two or three women with their babies on their backs and while they were gathering you know in all primitive societies you always hear about the chatter of the women women do chatter as the masters of language they exist in a sea of this kind of communication guys don't talk to each other you know I mean it's very rare and if, if in your life You were repeatedly over and over again told, okay, you stay here on this point and you watch all day long and we will drive the game by at evening and then you make the kill. I've been in that situation because I was forced through these male initiations in the meathead society I grew up in and I it's if you're a, if you're a 10-year-old 14-year-old kid and they set you up on what they call a point a hunting point they give you a gun and they set you up on a point and they say wait here 5 hours the major struggle is to not become to not be dissolved into the environment, to not become frightened, or it's called windigo psychosis, you know. It's to hold the wilderness at bay. And so you have to have rituals of ego empowerment to do that. And the hunter is the exemplar of ego personified. So I think just these different cultural styles made men more... uh, egotistical and also they didn't have uh, women are naturally hormonally scripted to transfer loyalty and self-identification to their children it's a much more abstract thing for a male to to put his child first, for a woman it's unthinkable that it could be any other way, for a man it's a consciously argued decision um Mm -hmm. Ego is our problem. I mean, you can talk about nuclear waste or nuclear proliferation, or but it all gets back to we are not willing to set aside our desires for big houses and many cars and tremendous... Uh, uh, comfort, and we, we do not have group values. The reason the planet is dying is because we cannot place the good of the group above our own desires consistently. We know the earth is dying, and yet you know who recently has made a voluntary act of uh, of simplification of their life or or something like that we 're aware of the problem. But we can't, some do, but a vanishingly small amount compared to the people who are just out there striving like crazy to get theirs. And sadly, uh, the dissolution of communism, which certainly had its problems, they're there for everybody to see, but the rhetoric of communism was collectivism you know, care for the collectivity. In the absence of anybody saying that, now we just have a dog-eat-dog world and the devil take the hindmost. And it looks like the devil will take the hindmost. Well, one of the um,
3: problems with ego is that it's one of those words that mean all things to all people. And uh, I think we need to say that even in the uh, societies where mushrooms were plentiful and a b- boundary dissolution took place people came <clears> down eventually and uh, necessarily so because you need an ego in development uh, I think you were the one who once said that uh, you need an ego so if you're in a restaurant you have uh, take your fork and put it in your mouth
2: instead of somebody so yes say it's a scaffold on which you build well
1: i think our primate our millions of years of primate existence give us a pretty strong ego and then it was just this brief interlude with psychedelic plants that changed it. And let me say a little bit more about that. It it sounds sort of clinical to say that it's ego dissolving. It's like we're dissolving a cyst or something. And there is, that's a good metaphor as far as it goes. But why is the ego dissolving is a good question. What is it about psilocybin that causes the ego to dissolve? Well, I think what it is, is it shows you the true size of the world. And in the presence of the true size of the world, you finally figure out how important you are. And you aren't important, you know. You don't matter a jot or a tittle in the big picture. You know, you get a picture of 10 million years and uh, ten local light years of space and then you say well how important is it what I think and then and, and it's humbling it's not disempowering it's humbling you see aha I should get with the program I only have meaning if I get with the program if I'm sailing against the program it's like an ant railing against God I mean who cares what difference does it make um I've always thought that the supreme expression of ego in the Western in Western literature is Captain Ahab of Moby Dick. I mean, this is ego unchained, ego raised to the status of deity. And it's a losing battle. It's a losing
2: battle.
1: But well, at one but at one point, I think in chapter fifty-three, the quarter deck, uh, the first mate starbuck who represents christian right reason says they're talking about moby dick and he takes the animal rights position Mm -hmm. and he says to ahab he says captain to seek revenge on a dumb brute seems blasphemy Mm -hmm. and ahab turns on him in fury and he says blasphemy starbuck Speak not to me of blasphemy. I would strike out the sun if it insulted me. For could it do that, then could I do the other, since there is ever a sort of fair play. The ego believes that it's on a level playing field with God Almighty. What could be more egotistical than that, you know? So, uh, psychedelics, whatever they do for us in our personal lives, uh, as a societal force, they, um, they dissolve the ego. And what is it that they dissolve it into? Why is it so wonderful to dissolve the ego? This now comes... To the sort of we've been talking evolution and so forth, and it all makes sense, and I don't think it frightens anybody because it's all happening on safe ground. But in fact, what lies behind all this, what you find when you dissolve the ego, is um, this mind, this intelligence, which seems to be distributed through nature, and which, if you're really alienated, you will call the alien because you don't know what else to call it. If you're a woman in touch with what that means, you will call it Gaia. If you're uh, an aspiring shaman, you will call it the spirit helpers. But the big news is that the rise of the ego has suppressed a portion of reality which is that nature is an animate and minded thing of some sort. And, and this breaks the rule. I mean, it's okay to say it's animate. You have the Gaia hypothesis, and, and that everybody congratulates themselves on what a leap forward that is. And it is. But it's quite another step to realize that it is not that the Earth is alive, It's that the Earth is intelligent. The Earth is some kind of mind. And before we throw up our hands and say, well, how could that be? How could a planet have a mind? Is it any less peculiar that a monkey could have a mind? (laughs) You know? how do monkeys have minds that's the miracle a planet is a very large system probably able to pull many tricks out of the bag it's our portion of mind that is so puzzling and what shamanism is about psychedelic shamanism is connecting back into this Gaian mind and I confess I you don't You can't take the measure of a thing like this to say, is is it a god or a goddess? Is it an extraterrestrial that has somehow lodged in the ecosystem of this planet and permeates it somehow as a distributed mind? Uh, We can't know what it is, but its presence has something to do with our presence here. What... uh, What stabilizes shamanic and aboriginal societies and what stabilized those Paleolithic societies was this direct pipeline to the mind of the goddess. And she, it, told human beings how to behave, what to do, how to live. Isn't this what they're always what Castaneda is claiming for psychedelics? They show you the right way to live. And uh, in the absence of this connection, you can't figure it out, you know. I mean, you can sort of figure it out. But we have lost touch with our mentor. We were literally wrenched from the teaching breast of the Gaian mother too soon. And so we became dysfunctional turn to warfare city building resource extraction and propaganda
0: Terrence can you tie
2: in the you were talking about the rate of evolution of the brain Mm -hmm.
0: and the the biological uh, process that that went through and a time frame for that and and do you think that the the shape of the brain or the uh, predominance of different parts of it at different stages have anything to do with this idea of of, uh, of ego or, or or shared experience through an evolving brain, uh, the mushroom would sound like you were talking about was the triggering was a catalyst trigger.
1: Well, I think what the the mushroom is the catalyst for is language. You see, I mean, language is a very mysterious activity uh, in all of nature. If you were to look for the thumbprint of God. This is the best candidate. Language represents a fundamental break with all other forms of natural organization. Uh, and, you know, there may be people here who are fond of the mumblings of dolphins or the, you know, there, there is communication in the natural world. But it's a long way from the brightest dolphin who ever lived to Paradise Lost or Hamlet. I mean, we are creatures of language on a level that is not met anywhere else. And we, our language flows out into three-dimensional space. You see, culture is the condensation of language. This building is an idea that we have then wrought in stone and wood. Esalen is an idea. San Francisco is an idea. The United States is an idea. means they are uh, things which begin originally in the domain of language and then we draw them down into matter. And, uh, you know, the fact that you can recognize instantly... Millions of sentences that you've never heard before. Uh, Chomsky and his school has spent a lot of time trying to understand this. So language is like the privileged vehicle by which human beings relate to the world. And interestingly enough, psychedelics, uh, especially psilocybin, uh, triggers language like activity. It causes what's called glossolalia, speaking in tongues. Speaking in tongues is simply language in the absence of sanctioned meaning, you know. It means you've got words, you've got declension, you've got grammar, but you just didn't bother to have meaning. And I think that, you know, we tend to believe language is for the conveyance of meaning. But I think that's just because we came late to thinking about the problem. Obviously, it seems to me, people were indulging in language-like activity for a long, long time before there was meaning. It was a form of entertainment. It's a form of amusement, it's something people did around the fire at night for each other. All you know, the original languages were all abstract. The marriage of language to naive realism is probably less than fifteen thousand years old, and has to do with agriculture and the rise of all this other stuff. Yeah. Is
2: that
1: what you were doing at the end of the experiment at Teloum? Oh, you mean that fun, that funny the thing stuff? Yes, the my nem ne tam kwa pipin. See how uh, there's emotion and there's intentionality and there's uh, anticipation, but there's no meaning. Meaning is just the cherry on the cake. It comes very, very late in that process. And one of the strange things about us as a species is our absence of an emotional vocabulary. You know, we we have um, 10,000 words to describe the process of binding a book, for crying out loud. But when it gets down to emotion... We have, you know, I love you, I hate you, and I'm not sure.
2: <laughs>
1: and uh, and yet, if you pay attention to your mind, the subtlest and most kaleidoscopic dimension of your being is the shifting screen of your emotions. And yet we can convey only the tiniest part of that, to each other. A place like Esalen is built on trying to open the valve to emotional language so that people can say what they feel. Most people, including myself, I'm sure, have not the clue as to how you begin to say what you feel. Uh, the psychedelic experience is a good place to begin because these feelings are so unusual that you can sort of attempt to language them without feeling you're going too far out on a limb with your personal being. But when you start talking to somebody about, you know, what is that poem? Is it by Robert Browning? How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. To say to someone, how do I love thee? Let me count the ways. And then to actually try to compose your own list in real time, it just, it's, it's too quote unquote embarrassing whatever that means it means we don't want to go that way we want to mask ourselves we feel reluctance to push in to that domain one of the and I assume this is because this was what happened to language well no it may have always been that way it is a thing of surfaces I mean it's tremendously easy to use language to describe a plant very hard to use it to describe a mood. Maybe this is because you can eat plants and not mm-hmm. moods. And so it's ultimately a tool, a survival skill. But uh, but our poetry, our art, the places where we rise toward the perfection of our humanness mm-hmm. are usually in the domain of language married to emotion, you see. Yeah.
2: question about uh, the place of pecking order in all this that you're talking about in uh, most animals you see uh, a pecking order emergence and uh, my feeling uh, from my own experiments is that uh, as far as uh, uh, psilocybin mushrooms, when I was in uh, Palenque where the uh, Mayan civilization is they uh, the people who live there don't use those mushrooms <coughs> the people who I got a strong feeling that the people who were in the Mayan civilization at the time did not use them but the the priests did and that uh, that perhaps way back when you're talking way back in the early uh, uh, evolution of things that the whoever was on the top of the pecking order either got the best mushrooms or kept the mushrooms themselves or away from the people, mm-hmm. that the knowledge that uh, that this could bring to normal people was antithetical to the needs and desires of the ones who uh, had, were higher than the higher.
1: Yeah, I think you're quite right. What you, the scenario you sketch out is what's called the Grand Inquisitor scenario. You, you all remember in the Brothers Karamazov the story that. Ilya or one of them tells about how during the Inquisition Christ miraculously appears on earth and he visits, he goes to visit the Grand Inquisitor and then this conversation takes place between them and the Inquisitor and Christ says, do you, do you know who I am? And the Inquisitor says, yes, I, I know who you are we don't want it We've got it worked out. We don't need Galilean troublemakers. Uh, we're, we've moved beyond that stage, and uh, uh, th- this is a similar sort of situation, I think. Uh, priest, you see, it's a it's a long slide from shamanism into priestcraft. Mm-hmm. And the way it happens, I think, is when the psychedelic becomes no longer accessible or understood, then priestcraft gets going with a vengeance. There's always a tendency or a tension in religion between the irrational force of revelation and the desire to um, uh, institutionally organize early Christianity was victim of this. For the first 120 years after the crucifixion, Christians were useless to anybody because they just stood around waiting for the end of the world. And then after 120 years of this, some people, Tertullian, Origen, Justinian, that crowd... Uh, said you know shouldn't we be investing in real estate and getting a little something together here this waiting for the end of the world hell who knows you know and so then the institutionalized church sprang into being Uh, another place in cultural history where this happened is in the, the mystery that surrounds Soma Soma was some kind of psychedelic plant nobody knows for sure what it was but the whole of the Rig Veda which is the earliest stratum of the Hindu literature the whole of the Rig Veda is hymns to Soma these incredibly extravagant praise for this intoxicant of some sort which the people were using well if it was so wonderful how could it ever be lost How could you ever lose? It would be like our civilization losing the the secret of how to make Coca-Cola. It's almost impossible to imagine an upheaval so thoroughgoing that we wouldn't forget how to make Coca-Cola. And so then we would collect Coke bottles and say, you know, this represents the vanished sacrament. If only we knew... The only way you can lose a secret with that kind of cultural import is if uh prior to the loss of it knowledge of it has been restricted
2: what they want it's the same with pups and uh, most any kind of animal so uh why would it be different for humans that i think that the humans who uh, got a little bit on top decided that uh, that this was not a good thing for others to
1: have well what I'm saying is it would only be true in the case of humans if they were using psilocybin in other words in the absence of psilocybin human beings will behave like kittens Mm -hmm. calves and pups but that psilocybin actually erodes the ego and this is what's put against a lot of psychedelics they say well the guy won't you know these these stoners they don't even come they don't punch the time clock and when you threaten to fire them it seems to have no effect on them I don't know how you reach these people well they it, the way you reach them is you appeal to something other than the ego the Modern industrial civilization has very skillfully promoted certain drugs and suppressed others. Uh, a perfect example is caffeine. Caffeine. I I hate to tell you this, caffeine is a fairly dangerous drug. It isn't dangerous in that a cup of coffee will kill you, but a lifestyle built around caffeine is not going to, you're not going to live to be a hundred years old or even 70, unless you are statistically in the improbable group. Why is caffeine not only tolerated but exalted? Because, boy, you can spin those widgets onto their winkles just endlessly without a thought on your mind. It is the perfect drug for modern industrial manufacturing. Why do you think caffeine, a dangerous, health-destroying, Destructive drug that has to be brought from the ends of the earth is enshrined in every labor contract in the Western world as a right. The coffee break. If somebody tried to take away the coffee break, you know, the masses would rise in righteous fury and pull them down. We don't have a beer break. We don't have a pot break. I mean, they. If you suggested, well, we, you know, we don't want a coffee break. We want to be able to smoke a joint at eleven, and they would say, well, you're just some kind of, you're a social degenerate, a troublemaker, a mad dog, a criminal. It would be, and yet the cost, the health benefit, the cost health benefit ratio of those two drugs, there's no comparison. Obviously, pot would be the better choice. The problem is, then you're going to be standing they're dreaming <laughs> rather than spinning the widgets onto the nuts right? right? coca, be good for that? coca leaves sure. coca leaves would be very good um, I suspect in the future we may see the legalization of coca as a sop to the mentality that wishes to see cocaine. Uh, Andy Wilde, who's a good friend of mine, we don't agree on everything, but a few years ago, he had great enthusiasm for a coca chewing gum. And I never got on the bandwagon because I didn't see that we needed another high focus industrial stimulant on the market but coca would be great and certainly in the amazon if you're a a patron you encourage your workers to chew coca i mean they're worthless without coca give them coca and put a machete in their hands and they will just flail for hours at the bush uh Another example that's interesting that shows how blinded and unaware we are of how drugs have shaped our society. We all know that slavery ended in the United States in the Civil War. And most people, if you question them, think that slavery existed before the Civil War in many places back into ancient times. This is not true at all. Slavery died in Western civilization with the collapse of the Roman Empire. During the Dark Ages and the medieval period, if you owned a slave, you owned one slave. It was the equivalent of owning a Ferrari or a Lamborghini. It was an index of immense wealth and social status and that slave would be a house boy or a cook or something like that someone close into you taking care of you Uh, it was inconceivable to use slave labor in the production of an agricultural product until Europe acquired an insatiable desire for sugar now let's think about sugar for a moment Nobody needs sugar. You can go from birth to the grave without ever having a teaspoonful of white sugar. You will never miss it. Uh, Throughout the Dark Ages and the Middle Ages, sugar was a drug, a medicine. It was used to pack wounds. To keep wounds septic, and it was very expensive, and there was very little of it. Nobody even knew where it came from. It was called uh, it was called uh, cane honey because they knew it came from some kind of jointed grass, but nobody had a clear picture of what sugar was. Well, when you extract sugar from sugar cane, it requires in Pre modern technology, a temperature of about 130 degrees. You cannot, free men will not work sugar. It's too unpleasant. You faint. You die from heat prostration. You have to take prisoners and you have to chain them to the sugar vats. And so uh, before the discovery of America, in the 50 years before the discovery of America, uh, they began growing sugarcane in the East Atlantic Islands, Madeira and the Canary Islands. And they brought Africans... Uh, and sold them into slavery specifically for sugar production. Now, when we get American history, they tell you that slaves were used to produce cotton and tobacco. In fact, this is not quite the truth. They had to find things for slaves to do because they brought so many slaves to the New World to work sugar, And they had so many children that then they just expanded and said, well, we've used slaves to work sugar. We might as well use them in cotton and in tobacco production. In 1800, every... Ounce of sugar entering England was being produced by slave labor of the most brutal and demeaning sort, and there was very little protest over this, it was just accepted. And uh, to this day, sugar cultivation in the third world is a kind of institutionalized slavery. Christian, you know, the popes, the kings of Europe, all of Christian civilization acquiesced in the bringing back of a practice that had been discredited during the fall of Rome in order to uh, supply the insatiable need for sugar it was an addiction. It had no cultural defense whatsoever. Yeah. Why do you
3: suppose honey didn't um, ascend to the prominence that the sugar did in society?
1: I, th- I just think you can't produce enough of it. You know, I mean, look at the price of a pound of sugar today versus the price of a pound of honey. Isn't honey five to ten times more expensive than granulated white sugar? I imagine this is always the case.
3: I don't agree with something you know um, it may be a matter of definition but uh, I don't think slavery died out I think it was um,
2: serfs were bound to the land The duke had the right to take the woman you wanted the people belonged to him
1: well you're right that serfdom replaced slavery but in a way serfdom was a much more humane system first of all the you could not be separated from the land serfs were, yeah, so you could stay with your family. So you could, and families were not separated. It was a kind of bondage to the land, but the separating of families, the selling of people at auction, yeah, oh, and this kind that was of brutal, yeah. <laughs> so s- you're right that serfdom persisted. But you see, in late Roman times, they had what was called the latifundia. And these were essentially agricultural concentration camps where people grew agricultural products under the lash for Roman markets. And that disappeared until the 1440s in the West. (coughs) Anybody else have... Yeah.
2: Uh, You might want to say this too, but following this gentleman's question, I wonder if the... The psychedelic experience of psilocybin and its ego dissolving properties and everything. What happens that an elite would control that and keep it from everyone else if it were truly ego dissolving mm-hmm. and unifying? Yeah.
1: No way. So many people are saying, yeah, this must be an important point. I didn't understand it. What is it, again?
2: Uh, what, what happens to make an elite few control a property that's unifying and ego-dissolving and keep it for themselves and away from the populace?
1: Well, it's. I think it's because these things have another quality, which we haven't talked too much about, which is the psychedelics are the source of special information. And these hierarchies want to control the information. I mean, in other words, it's the pipeline to God problem and you know the Protestant Reformation was a whole effort to overthrow the papal claim that you couldn't just pray, you had to have theologians interpret scripture and dogma and they would gently guide you toward the right understanding but that you weren't supposed to have a direct relationship to spirit, you were supposed to leave that to experts so I think that's uh, another issue that the psychedelics empower with gnosis true information and every society is li- is based on a lie of some sort So having people going around the official lie and getting in touch with reality turns them into social dissidents, and you have to control that. I mean, that was exactly what happened in the 1960s. I mean, we can talk about it a little bit, uh, but what happened was... Too many people were getting stoned and then checking out of the official canon of the culture... And people just said, you know, you can take that job and shove it. And this was very alarming. Now, every society can tolerate a certain amount of this. You always have people who just aren't playing the game. But what happened in the 1960s was uh, that LSD entered the picture. And LSD is different... From all other psychedelic drugs in one tremendously important quality. And that is a single skilled chemist in a small apartment with about $40,000 worth of equipment in a single long weekend can produce 40 to 60 million hits of a drug 40 to 60 million hits this is this is a loaded gun at the head of society now I wrote a book on growing mushrooms and years ago years ago goad mushrooms quite a bit and I can tell you, a, an absolutely dedicated mushroom grower working his ass off for six months can produce maybe four or 5,000 hits of mushrooms. In other words, it's entirely a neighborhood phenomenon. It doesn't, it doesn't affect the dials that measure the fate of society. But you produce 40 million hits of a drug you have entered the realm of global politics. You now probably have more power, you and your friends probably now have more power to affect the fate of the world than, let's say, the government of Switzerland. Well, no, not Switzerland. They have the banks. But the government of Finland, let's say. You have just shoved Finland out of the way and taken your place in the hierarchy. So no government would put up with that for a moment.
2: To splitting the atoms. I mean, yeah,
1: they don't allow you thing? to assemble nuclear warheads in your basement, and they're not going to allow you to manufacture LSD in your basement either, for the same reasons.
3: In a way, that it sounds like uh, the LSD then is to could be well, LSD related to psilocybin is like cocaine related to coca. In a way, if you look at it it's too easy to get, too well easy. it's not
1: you see it's not that there's something wrong with LSD here we have one hit of LSD there's nothing wrong with it compared to one hit of psilocybin the problem is that you can pro- it's just like agriculture yeah. Overproduction. it changes you from a tripper into somebody who thinks they should buy machine guns because you now have five million dollars shoved under your mattress and everybody knows Knows. You, God, you wouldn't dare take LSD in a situation like that. The presence of so much LSD has turned you into a defensive paranoid. Now you must defend your fortune. Forget LSD. It's changed from a vehicle of spiritual enlightenment into a commodity that must be defended at all costs, see.
3: The cost, in terms of uh, what the government thinks of this, I mean, you look at what the government's doing with drug sentences now, and uh, I, I just in Hawaii, for marijuana growing, is a minimum ten-year sentence, and um, in that, a federal law for possession of nuclear weapons is a maximum of twelve years
1: so if you have a joint you get 10 years if if you're growing you get 10 years if you have a 10 megaton thermonuclear device you could get probation (laughs) well that shows you where the uh, alarms are sounding doesn't it folks you see the hidden issue and it need not be hidden among us. The hidden issue, the government always tries to paint itself as the mother hen, concerned about her errant chicks. And so to keep you from uh, crashing into other people on the freeway, to keep you from leaping out of buildings or committing suicide, we have to control these drugs. As a matter of fact, you know, this is absurd. More people die because of alcohol than all illegal drugs combined in a given year. The the government is not your friend on this issue. The government is very concerned to control the mass mind. And uh, marijuana, my, my God, since the British Commission on Hemp... Which was in 1889, I believe, the British India, uh, com- the British East India Committee Company commissioned a study of hemp. They have spent millions and millions and millions of dollars to find something, anything, you name it, wrong with cannabis. There is nothing wrong with cannabis. It is the most thoroughly tested, pawed over, and examined drug in human history, and, and they just come up with the lamest stuff. I mean, they. T- tell you, you know, you're going to have tits. (laughs) Give me a break. They say, you won't be motivated in your job like your job is supposed to be the sine qua non against which all things are to be measured I'll
2: stop and when I get a training break yeah right
1: <laughs> <laughs> the, and, and, and I think people on our side of this question have been tremendously naive because people just think we just have to convince them that it's harmless it ain't harmless. It is a knife poised at the heart of dominator values. It would, it would make the modern industrial assembly line, political loyalties, the macho image projection, all of these little tricks that they're running are severely eroded by cannabis. And they will stop at nothing to eradicate it. Look at the budget Of the DEA, what are they doing? They're giving uh, 65% is dedicated to cannabis eradication. Heroin gets 20% and coke gets all the rest. It's demonstrably absurd the way the money is spent unless you have a secret agenda. Of some sort. And if your agenda is su- to suppress the evolution of unwanted social attitudes in the American public, then you have to keep your eye on cannabis very, very closely. To get even more
3: diabolical, we won't waste a lot of time on this, but I mean, there's another agenda there, which is if you were in the business of making lots and lots of money off of illegal drugs, it would be very much in your interest very much to be sure that those drugs remain
1: illegal and expensive and expensive
3: mm-hmm. I I, take the out of that.
1: Well. I don't think that that's that's necessarily true I mean yeah. it may be true in well, some
3: in some regards it's a different, different level of
1: well but but Steve uh, the the guy the new guy who heads the war on drugs Martinez this guy I heard him on NPR this week and his most passionate moment in the half hour interview was he said we have pushed the price of an ounce of cannabis past the price of an ounce of gold and we're going to keep it that way (laughs) nothing about eradication talk about keeping the Price high. I
0: mean, as far as the
3: government's concerned, I mean, they're just, they just spending billions of dollars a year to, uh, uh, to prosecute and incarcerate drugs and uh, uh, specifically marijuana, not to mention the lost revenue that they could obtain by simply taxing it, which they would if it were available to those people who
2: didn't have the wherewithal to grow it
1: themselves. Right. The fact that they refuse to tax it when they're starving for revenue shows that the, there must be a secret agenda. It doesn't make any kind there's of something,
3: sense. something else going on there, too, is that if you have a government which needs to do many, many things which are untraceable... Uh, as soon as you put money into it, it's traceable. But drugs provide a really nice source of untraceable money. That's all I can. Yeah,
1: that's that's another level, and we might as well say a little bit about that. When I wrote this book, I did a lot of research, and it, uh, about. An area I didn't know that much about, which is let's say from 1500 to the present, drugs of addiction. And what I discovered is it, it, drug smuggling is like assassination. If the government isn't involved, it never seems to really happen. And uh, governments have been using drugs for centuries as forms of secret revenue. This whole sugar thing that I laid out to you those were decisions made by the crown heads of Europe in collusion with the Pope. It wasn't common people who set those policies in place. Uh, During the 1960s when uh, the black ghettos began to come apart suddenly Number three, China white heroin was cheaper and more available than it had ever been at any time in the history of the heroin problem in the United States. Why? Because the CIA saw, you know, all these black guys are getting up a bunch of uppity niggers, as the government calls them. You just smother it in heroin get everybody either hooked or making money and they're not really.
3: I mean it's absolutely brilliant if that's your agenda there's no better way to go about it than this it's just like you could invent a better drug than crack that's you right distract these people and just have them killing each other and not messing with you know the real and they
1: don't things. care really about the effect of drugs and one one group one faction will work against another for example um, I'm a great Aficionado of hashish. And uh, hashish became very hard to get in the United States in the late 70s. But as soon as uh, the Russians invaded Afghanistan, Suddenly there were was massive amounts of excellent Afghani hashish at prices that nobody had seen for fifteen years. The reason was the CIA knows that uh, hashish is it's not really a problem, but what they wanted is they wanted an income for the mujahideen, and they had to pay for all these weapons, so they just started bringing this in wholesale, and it wasn't even a smuggling. On Operation. I mean, I received reports from people who said, you know, smuggling, they're not smuggling, they're unloading it on Pier 39 with the uh, Stevedore Union Local 1030 is taking off, you know, 500 pound blocks of hashish by the tens of thousands. And the day the Afghan war ended they had staged an enormous series of interlocking busts on their own infrastructure and they closed it down and they pulled it to pieces. When, when Khomeini kicked out the Shah the uh, Iranian heroin business then fell under the control of the mullahs and at that point suddenly cocaine emerges as a major problem in the United States because we just switched our supply lines we could no longer depend on Iranian heroin because we couldn't depend on these screwy Islamic fundamentalists so we just turned toward all of these company assets in Honduras, and Ecuador, and Colombia. Very, very cynical. You know, it's only been 120 years since the so-called Opium Wars. Very few people know what the Opium Wars... What was the issue in the Opium Wars? Well, it turns out the British government wanted to deal opium in China, and the Chinese emperor told them to get lost. And they flipped and they sent naval units, and they uh, laid siege to several Chinese cities, and they forced the Chinese imperial court to agree that they could deal as much opium as they wanted on the wharves of Shanghai and Chusan.
2: You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time.
0: So what did you think about what Terence was saying about what he calls deep time, and uh, his thought that during the childhood of our species, our ancient ancestors were actually victims of abuse and trauma. Uh, collectively, that is. It's an interesting thought, but uh, to be honest, it isn't something that I know enough about in order to uh, have any kind of an opinion about it. And uh, since we're in that area right now, here's something else that I know next to nothing about, but which hasn't prevented me from beginning to form an opinion about it. Uh, So let me start with full disclosure. I know next to nothing about biology, only uh, what few bits and pieces float by from time to time and uh, grab my attention. About a year ago or so, I I read that it was reported that some experiments indicate that contrary to popular opinion, neurons in our brains can in some cases uh, regenerate themselves. But I understand that the jury is still out on that. Which brings us to the commonly accepted theory that when we are born, our brains already contain all of the neurons they're ever going to have. I'm told that a full 60% of a baby's energy goes to powering the brain, but that drops down to 20% of an adult's energy requirement. Although I know some people that probably aren't using more than about 1 or 2%. <laughs> so uh, I shouldn't have said that, should I? I'm sorry. But I'm also told that during infancy, what is taking place in a baby's brain is basically a large-scale pruning operation. In essence, uh, as I understand it, upon birth, our brains begin to eliminate unnecessary connections between neurons. Uh, Use it or lose it, in other words and (laughs) I can almost hear the biologists here in the salon scratching their fingernails on a blackboard to get me to quit being so simplistic. (laughs) Unfortunately, I only possess the most basic and simple understanding of what I'm talking about here. So, in the tradition of Terrence McKenna, well, I'll continue. (laughs) Oh, I'm in a good mood today, aren't I? Anyway, uh, I've read that our personalities are basically fixed by the time we are six or seven years old, which seems to run parallel to this concept of eliminating unused neural connections during the early years of life. Could it be that in this uh, debate over which is more important, nature or nurture, that ultimately the environment in which a child finds itself during the years in which the brain is developing, that children, all children everywhere... Are having their brains hardwired by only retaining neural connections that make sense in the family, religion, and culture in which it finds itself. As I said, I'm barely qualified to even ask these questions, but hopefully uh, they'll spark some interest in a few of our scholastic fellow saloners who maybe can explore further the question of how much of a society's collective behavior is actually a result of its members' brains being hardwired to respond in a particular way to a given circumstance and if that is found to be the case uh, well don't you think that it would be a good argument in favor of reinstating psychedelic rituals as ways to dissolve the unhealthy parts of our egos and rewire the anger and hate that has been hardwired in so many of our brains and thus to ultimately make our societies more human It's, it's just a thought